Thank you all for being here tonight. My name is Jay Lynch, as you've heard, and it seemed to us that it would be imprudent not to take some time tonight to think about what God has done at this institution over these many years. So if you'll forgive me, I'm going to spend about nine or ten minutes just reciting sort of some history, and I don't want to take away too much of your time, but talk about sort of this man and what God has done, at least here and in my own life. So. Um, Go back 23 years, almost about two weeks to the day. It was my 40th birthday, and we were sitting on the back porch of my house with some friends. And we were saying, Laura had already tried to establish a Christian study center and really hadn't gotten any, um, any feedback from this Charlottesville study center. And we weren't sure what to do, but we just got to talking about it. And we said, well, all we need is a building, a director, and money, and we're ready to go. <laughs> And that conversation then led to a series of events where one of my patients, who was very sympathetic to the idea of a Christian study center, set about um, purchasing this building. For those of you that have been around a while, you'll remember it was Chaucer's, a restaurant. And we had our first strategic planning meeting, it is kind of crazy, in 2000 on April the 4th. So it's been 22 years, and a whole group of people representing various Christian traditions, campus ministers, pastors, and faculty and administrators got together and spent a Saturday here. We created a purpose statement, a vision statement, and a mission statement, which I have before me. And I'm just going to say, one of the amazing things is if you look on our website, as I did yesterday, and look at our mission and vision statement, it bears a remarkable resemblance to what we were talking about 22 years ago. It's, been, it's grown, it's evolved, it's morphed, it's, it's matured, but it's basically the same vision. So the board got together and we started trying to figure out how in the world do you have a study center? And for a year, my wife and Kim Gregg and some others did fundraising work. And they, we made our own brochures and spoke at our church. We knew that we needed a director who had a pastor's heart in an academic mind. And we weren't sure exactly how to find such a person. Some of you know the story, but I'm just going to briefly recount it. Um, a guy named Richard Horner and um, James Hunter were at RTS in Orlando teaching a course, a course which, incidentally, Dr. Mike Sica Max Sicasis attended, okay? And two pastors from my church attended and got to talking to this guy, Richard Horner, who was from the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at the University of Virginia, said, would you be an advisor to us as we're trying to establish this thing called a study center? Richard got home, and in typical Richard fashion, couldn't remember the names of the people he had talked to. <laughs> but he did remember that I, they were part of a church, so he called the PCA church, and it turns out that the church secretary, whose name is Debbie Staples, was one of the first people to donate to this project, she and her husband. And so we got to connect it, and in February, I guess, of 2001, he and I had our first conversation over the phone, lasted about an hour and a half, prayed together, and both of us sensed that this was the right thing. And that man <laughs> and his de devoted wife and beloved family moved here with two months of operating expenses in the bank. Just want you to know that. A move of faith. That was in the summer of, 20, of 2001. So, what has happened in the 22 years? Um, it has, I, I can't tell you what, 
I can't tell you how much this has influenced me, my wife and I. I learned all sorts of people, named, names like Annie Dillard, Simone Weil, Flannery O'Connor, this guy Blazy Pascal or something <laughs> like that, if you've heard of him, Walker Percy, Augustine. All of these people who I was introduced to through the ministry of this um, wonderful place and through the direct, director Richard have now influenced me and they all work their way into my lectures to medical students. And in fact, I'm going to quote one of them as, we, as I hand the podium over to him. But the other thing that I would say is there is a way of being. It isn't just having a pastor's heart and an academic mind. It is a way of treating people. It is a kind of wisdom. Um, on Saturday at our um, event where we had all the accepted medical students come back and we were trying to show them what University of Florida is like, I told them, you were all very, very smart, very intelligent. It's actually not all that exciting. And this is what Simone Weil had to say about intelligence. The intelligent man who is proud of his intelligence is like the condemned man who is proud of his large self. That pride becomes a prison to us. And so as I've gotten to know Richard, he has become not just my compatriot, my friend here, he has been the older brother that I never had, the mentor that I have had in my life. And there are so many things I could say about him, but I want to end with a text about wisdom. And this is from James. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them let him show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. In other words, in the biblical view, true wisdom produces humility. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. I was reading this morning about the uh, mustard seed, the smallest of seeds, Jesus said, the kingdom of God, then turns into a beautiful tree, and the birds of the air come and light on it. And as I think about the ministry of this place for 20 years, no one, none of us had any idea what would come from this. And we now have our representatives, people who have alumni all over the world, who are doing God's work. And it seems only fitting that in what is Richard's last official lecture as our director, although I'm quite sure if I have anything to do with it, he'll be up here before, just in the future, just in a different capacity, that he should talk to us about the wisdom that comes from Ecclesiastes. Richard, thank you. Goodness. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Um, the, one of the other people who was in that class in January of 2001 was Todd Best, who happens to be sitting in the back of the room. And um, I, 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 this is a great way to start. Uh, I knew I was into a big event tonight um, when I walked in wearing a tie. And Todd Best and Jay Lynch both walked in wearing pants, trousers, <laughs> as opposed to shorts, just to be clear. Um, and uh, I took my tie off, you know, but we'll, we'll leave you guys where you are. Um, 
at any rate, yeah, I don't know why I wore that tie. I'm not sure who I was trying to impress. But, um, <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, thank you, Jay. Thank you, Mike. Thank you to the staff of this place who um, have turned this into um, the very special evening that it is for me, um, together with April and, and all of us in our family. Um, thank you. I uh, told the staff just yesterday morning, I think it was, um, that I had been looking forward to ending this semester with two informal chats, one two weeks ago about Matthew and now tonight about Ecclesiastes, and they went and turned this into a real event, <laughs> and uh, now I need to actually show up. Um, <laughs> I have learned that this retirement bridge that you go across um, is one that's full of emotions and um, uh, I've been on a real loop-de-loop, -loop, so I'm, I'm not going to try to say a whole lot. Um, but, but I will say, uh, already this evening in the last hour and a half, chatting with several of you and others this evening and looking around this room, um, you and so many others um, who aren't here tonight are the ones who have made this thing the good thing that it's become. Um, you, don't, you don't get this through one person or even a few people or a staff. It's, it's a whole lot of people contributing. I was thinking, Jay, as you read that little list of names of people you've gotten to know, the truth is I've gotten to know most of those people through this place too because other people in my world here introduced Flannery O'Connor and Simone Vey, et cetera, uh, to me. Um, so it has been a wonderful community kind of effort. Um, many of you have made this place the better place it is. Many of you have made my job the good job that it is. Um, and I thank you for that. Um, I, yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> I, I, am, I am extremely blessed um, in you. Um, and that's just right across this room and it extends from Chicago to Tampa and from California to Dubai. Um, it's a wonderful community uh, that I have been blessed to be a part of and that April and I have enjoyed uh, together. Um, I am honored by your presence uh, this evening, so thank you. Um, the question, of course, that several of you have already asked me out front and is on your mind is what's gonna happen in retirement. Um, <laughs> My wife retired from 40 years of nursing three years ago and um, has been talking about still getting a t-shirt that says, I'm retired, don't ask me what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, are, we are very pleased to be at this point in our lives and thinking about this thing called retirement and having no plans to get up and move. <laughs> um, that in fact, we like this place, we like the community that we are part of, particularly here at the center and communities beyond this that we are a part of. Um, we're delighted to be here. Um, I am delighted to, to, to know that this community, the study center, um, will remain very much on our hearts and our minds and our lives. I am so delighted that Mike Sikasis is going to be our next executive director and that that is God's provision and leading. We're, I'm just delighted that that's happening. I can promise him I am not going to be in the back seat trying to drive. Um, and in fact, though, glad to support him and everyone here in the work that I think continues to just be so important. Um, at the heart of that community is our family. Uh, we are so thankful to have our youngest daughter, Jenna, 
living here in Gainesville, and we are happily known as Jenna Horner's parents in town, um, which makes us happy. And then our other two children are up in Greenville, South Carolina, Rachel and Dave and their, their children, and then our son, Ken, and his fiancee, Tiffany, who are with us this evening as well. Um, and uh, so the family is certainly going to be central to the answer uh, to the question of what will you be doing in um, retirement. Beyond that, I know I've got some projects, yard and house and reading and writing. I'd love to still do more with the Pascal question, Blasey Pascal or whatever his name was. Um, and then the other one is the Ecclesiastes project that we're looking at this evening. And with that, I'll transition into it and um, we will talk about um, Ecclesiastes. And, um, and I am delighted to have the opportunity to do it, except I think I need to hand this to you. <laughs> we, we always try to leave a little drink to the speaker, but I thought that was probably not the one we were aiming at. Um, uh, let me, I, I do just want to pray as we open up this text. Um, it is more than just an interesting old text. Uh, so we look to you, dear God, and ask that you would please um, illumine our hearts and minds, uh, open this text to us and us to the text guard my friends from um, ways I would mislead them, but help us all to keep thinking together in your word and see if we can just be open to it, doing more work uh, perhaps than it's ever done before. Um, I do thank you for these friends, brothers and sisters and friends. Um, they are um, a, a great blessing to me and um, you have been very good to me in this role. I uh, ask your continued blessing here and bless us now, we pray as well. In Christ's name, amen. Um, probably most people in the room have some idea of Ecclesiastes. Whether you have read it numerous times over your life or whether it is really very new to you, maybe a book that you've never even read completely through from start to end, you probably have some idea of the book. If you know it at all, you know it for its famous opening line, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And I do want to go ahead and, I got Um, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. <clears throat> These are the words of Kohelet. Kohelet is the Hebrew word for the name of the person speaking in the book of Ecclesiastes. The word Kohelet is then translated into Greek as Ecclesiastes, and so we get the English version, Ecclesiastes, from the Greek word. But Kohelet, I think, is the right word to use for the author of this book, for the speaker of this book, at least. Um, the word means basically assembler. And that is why you will read in your English version that Kohelet is being identified as the preacher or the teacher, thinking that he is assembling a, an audience, a congregation of some sort, and speaking to them. Um, the speaker, Kohelet, is basically portrayed in the persona of Solomon. 
Um, there's all sorts of discussion around the question of authorship and, and how to understand it. But anyone really, whether they are going for an earlier or a later date, will understand that while Solomon's name is not mentioned, that's who's supposed to come to mind when you read the book. And he is the symbol of wisdom in, um, in the scriptures. So it is Kohelet who is speaking here, and his words, often rambling and agonized, are framed by an editor. So in verse 1 of chapter 1, and then in the last few verses of chapter 12, you clearly have an editor framing the words of Kohelet. And then from verse 2, I would say, in chapter 1 to verse 7 of chapter 12, you have Kohelet's um, uh, thoughts. Um, throughout the book, then, what you get are these passages that are the vanity of vanity passages, or a declaration that something is vanity. Trying to amass wealth is vanity. Trying to amass wisdom is vanity. Speaking with lots of words is vanity. You have the vanity passages. The term shows up almost 40 times in the book. And then you have what are now called the carpe diem passages, meaning the places where Kohelet says, well, what I have seen to be good is to eat and to drink and to enjoy your work, and later to enjoy life with your wife. These are the so-called carpe diem, sort of seize the day type passages that sound like they are affirming food and drink and work and marriage. So you have the vanity passages, you have these carpe diem passages interspersed, and then you have the fear God and obey his commandments conclusion um, that the editor gives us at the end, and that I think we also have at various points throughout the book. The real heart of trying to understand the book, and where you see commentators just struggling and struggling and struggling, and all of us along with them, is what does this term vanity get at? The Hebrew term is Hevel, and it's there on the handout. What does Hevel mean? To what realities does it point? With what questions was Kohelet struggling? Hevel, Hevelim, Davar, Kohelet, Hevel, Hevelim, Lakhol, Hevel. What's being pointed to there? Um, early on, working partly from Origen's influence and other early church fathers and commentators, Jerome is the one who, in his Latin translation, gave us vanitas, which becomes in English in earlier translations, vanity. And so it's become vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that has remained remarkably tenacious, <laughs> despite the fact that scholars have often called into question whether this is the right way to translate it or the right understanding of what Kohelet is trying to get at, um, it has turned out to be quite enduring. Now the term Hevel, in its most basic sense, has is, is, got to do with something like vapor or breath or breath-like, insubstantial, hard to grasp. But, but it's really kind of open <laughs> as to how this book is using the term. And with any term, you know, you don't find out the meaning by going to the dictionary or lexicon. You find out how it's used. And it's how it's used that puts the meanings into the lexicons. So there's a real question. And commentator 
And student after student will, will admit, this is, this is the trick. How shall we understand this term? My concern is that I think we have tended to misread Ecclesiastes as being a kind of a jaded declaration of the meaninglessness of life that then cynically urges us to make the best of our lot in life and thereby, in that sort of negative way, pushing us toward God, directing us ultimately to fear God and obey his commandments. But much of the book is seen as, as a comment on, on, on life as being vain or futile or even meaningless. And then these carpe diem kind of passages understood to be, well, given how bad it is, you might as well at least eat and drink and try to enjoy your work and try to enjoy your marriage because that's your lot in life. And, and then you go, okay, now is that wisdom? Is that, are we supposed to take that seriously? Is that good advice? Or is that irony or cynicism that just points us ultimately to God? How are we supposed to read this book? The NIV 50-ish years ago went ahead and translated Hevel as meaningless. I've got it there on the handout. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. They left no question as to how they understood <laughs> the term or the book. Um, I got to say, I'm really disappointed with that translation. Now, some of my own seminary professors were involved in the translation of the NIV. Thankfully, they did the Psalms and not Ecclesiastes. But, but I just feel like, oh, no. And, it, and at every point, I think, they went with meaningless. And I, and I go, boy, is that, is that what we've got here? But I've got to admit, the NIV is just making explicit what is commonly held. And while vanity continues to be, in most of the translations, uh, King James Version, the New King James Version, Revised Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, for instance, all go with vanity. Um, the Tanakh, the Jewish Publication Society version of the Hebrew Bible, goes with utter futility. That's a pretty strong, strong one. But that's the message. Life is utterly meaningless, according to Kohelet. So I found myself decades ago starting to question this reading. One of my questions was, is this really the best that ancient Hebrew wisdom has to offer? And, and that's just a genuinely honest question. I, have, I had just gotten too accustomed to ancient Hebrew wisdom having more to offer. Than, than what was being perceived as a kind of a warmed over late Greek cynicism that crept into the book. Is it the best that ancient Hebrew wisdom would have to offer? Another thing that caught my attention was that whatever Havel is and whatever it's pointing to, it's still there at the end of the book. We didn't get some kind of solution. We didn't get some way to overcome it or make it go away. The, the final line of what Kohelet says is the same as his first line. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Hevel, hevelim, bakol, all is hevel. I got to admit, it also just gives us some odd readings. You're reading in um, the ninth chapter of the NIV version. I've got it there. Here's the good advice, folks. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. 
So I go home and I tell my wife, look, we might as well make the best of it, you know. And they go, really? Is this what we got? Does she it? Thankfully, I have other things to say to her, but, um, and, and we'll get there. But at any rate, um, it, it is interesting um, to me, um, uh, sorry, that, that, oh, that, that the NIV, I give them credit, they do actually get the word meaningless in there twice. I don't know of another translation that does. They're so scared of this, they just, they just can't even do anything with it. So in the other translations, the good translations, you'll only see the Hevel show up once. So I say to the NIV folks, good for you, you stood up and you said it. But really, enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you all your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. So, where do we go? Um, various things started moving me. One of them was the New American Standard Version, which has always been a good go-to for me, uses four different terms to translate Havel. They begin with vanity, that becomes futility, and then they also translate it as emptiness and fleeting a couple of times. And I go, okay, I think this might be getting us somewhere. Just, just, let's just broaden the term. I do find that Hebrew words are often really thick, rich, large words. And when they get translated into English, they get reduced. Um, even, you know, well, there's a lot of examples. But I, um, and, and, I, and I think this must be one of those terms. How do you, how do you translate it without reducing it? The Tanakh um, goes with vanity, I believe, initially. But in chapter 8, it goes to the word frustration. Frustrating. Life is frustrating. Now, somewhere in there, a friend of mine, a fellow named Max Harris, um, who I had gone to seminary with for a year, and then we ended up, unbeknownst to each other, as grad students at UVA. And we were chatting one afternoon at UVA, and somehow or another we get into the whole Ecclesiastes thing. And Max said um, he thinks the right word is frustrating. Max is a Brit, and so, you know, it's like with Brits, anything spoken in English always sounds impressive and compelling, um, you know, when, when he says frustrating, uh, and I can't say it the way he does. But for other reasons, it started to go, yeah, I wonder if that's getting at something. One of the things I did then was to go to the Septuagint reading of Hevel, um, and the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It would date back to the a couple of centuries before Christ for the most part. So it's taking us back into there somewhere. And the way the Greek Septuagint renders Hevel is as metaiotes. Um, <coughs> now, what does metaiotes get us? If you go to the New Testament then and look for that word, it is translated in most of your English Bibles by the word futility. And, and to just be fair, that's, that's how it's rendered in your English Bible for the most part. But there is one place, and now you see it is the NIV, where I go, okay, good. Romans 8, 18 to 21 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to metaiotes, and the NIV renders it there as frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay 
and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What's the picture there? Well, here's the Apostle Paul, very much rooted in Hebrew law and wisdom, looking back to the creation and then to this sad reality of a fallenness that settles in of the creation. That's the entire created order, human, animal, plant, <coughs> the entire creation subjected to frustration, to a bondage to decay, to the brokenness of fallenness and all the ways that that finds expression. And, and what I am inclined to say is that I think that's what Kohelet's struggling with. Kohelet is, is, is observing, his eyes are open, his heart is sensitive, and it becomes a kind of a agonized, thoughtful reflection on the nature of, of, of our lives, of human experience, and he sees in it a lot of trouble, a lot of things that are, to put it mildly, frustrating, hard. So my thesis is that Kohelet is struggling with how to live then in a fallen, troubled, exasperating world. Well, he knows there is beauty and there are times to laugh and dance. He observes and agonizes over the countless ways that the brokenness of our broken world finds expression, including the ways that our own efforts to overcome that brokenness often only make matters worse. He wonders if there's some way of overcoming the Hevel character of life, but ultimately he admits the enduring reality of Hevel and seeks to discern what would be a good way to live in such a world. So the direction I would want to go in translating this phrase is use a lot of different words, but they would be things like troubled and wearisome, says the teacher, fleeting and capricious. Everything is exasperating. And to continue to just kind of unpack that a bit, here, here's the picture of life that you get when you read this book. Not that it is futile or meaningless, but it is wearisome, repetitious, unfair and unjust, fleeting, frustrating, often unsatisfying, and just downright sad. There is both a, a weightiness about it and an unbearable lightness of being about it. It feels as if something is missing or lacking. There's a capriciousness and unpredictability about it, and life is always shrouded by suffering and death and troubled by evil. There's a lot to be sad about in life. And if you don't agree with me, I'd like to know what world you're living in or how you have managed to blind yourself to the obvious realities that fill not only the newspapers and the screens, um, but, but our own personal lives the ways that the brokenness shows up. I've given you a short list there of some of the passages you might go to to kind of see some of this. Um, in the very beginning of uh, the first chapter, the first one there is the introduction, and I won't read it in full, but verse 8, all things are wearisome, so much so that they're, they're, no words are adequate. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. 
There's nothing new under the sun. Verse 11, there's no remembrance of earlier things. There's a, we're all so forgetful. And those who come after us will not remember us. He there identifies himself as Kohelet. And he says in verse 13, where I have set my mind or my heart to explore by wisdom concerning all that's been done under heaven. And he says it's a grievous task that God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun. Behold, all is a havel and a vexation of spirit. That phrase can be either a vexation of spirit or a striving after wind. And I can't go into it, but my personal way would be vexation. That, that life is vexing. There is a kind of Hevel character and there's a vexation of spirit. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. And the grievous task that God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with, one of the translation things I struggle with is that word for grievous is evil. The word evil shows up probably a dozen times in this book, and it's only translated as evil maybe four times out of the twelve. And I go, why? Why are we, why are we backing off from that? I, I mean, in a sense, this is the, this is the struggle with the problem of evil. We, we live in a, in a sadly broken world. And so chapters 3, 4, 5, that's about injustice and corruption of power. Chapter 8 is about the unfairness of life. Chapter 9, time and chance, the capricious nature of life. Chapter 10 um, has to do sort of on-the-job injuries. You go out to build a wall and a brick falls off and hits you on the head and gives you a concussion. It's that, it's that kind of thing. Chapter 10, verse 1, is the fly in the ointment image. Um, there are a lot of images, incidentally, that we get from Ecclesiastes that you probably don't know they came from Ecclesiastes. This is one of them. If you've ever heard the thing about the fly in the ointment, this is where it comes from, and it's a great picture. It captures the beauty, the wonder the majesty of God's work and then into this lovely perfume that's been exquisitely created, a fly, and, and, and it's ruined. It, it's just, and, and isn't that a great picture of, of how life is? Um, chapter 12. The first seven verses give you this wonderful picture of old age. And for those of us who are now on Medicare and, and know this well, you know, it's the, those pictures of the eyes and the teeth and, and the ears that no longer work. Um, yeah, everything that Medicare doesn't pay for, it goes wrong. Um, it, these, are, these, are, these are the things I think Kohelet is struggling with, from the mundane to the profound. One of the examples I often use in talking about this on the mundane is when you need that printer most to work and you go to it and it's got to work, it's got to work, it's got to work, it doesn't work. <laughs> it happened to me today at 10 a.m. I, I couldn't believe it. I literally was trying to print out this, this handout for you and the printer wouldn't work. There's the mundane, the one we laugh at, but, but you just go from there across a spectrum of the ways that the brokenness of a broken world find expression. And I think that's what Kohelet is struggling with. And his question is, what would be a good way to live in a world like this? And, and I just point out, in none of what I just said about what he's struggling with, is there a hint of meaninglessness? Mm -hmm. If anything, the reason that he's struggling as much as he is, 
is because there's something in him that says, ah, it feels like it ought to matter. Why am I aggravated? Why does oppression of the poor bother me the way it does? Why does injustice and unfairness and capriciousness of this life bother me the way it does? Far from it being then a declaration of the meaninglessness, it is a question about how to live in a world like this. And if you want to turn the page over then, the answer that he gives, I think, just very simply, is first, fear God, and secondly, to receive God's good gifts as good gifts still. And they include food, drink, work, and marriage. Fear God is not just the conclusion of the editor in chapter 12. It is a theme of Kohelet throughout this book. The conclusion from the editor is, when all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to everyone. But it's there throughout. Chapter 3, verse 14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing to be taken from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. Chapter 5, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Rather, fear God. Chapter 8, verse 12, still I know it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. And that's in response to the fact that life is so often unfair. In chapter 12, famously, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. It starts with recognizing in the Hebrew wisdom tradition, this book does stand in that tradition. It is not a deviation from it or a departure from it. It begins with a fear of God. God is God and I am not. There is a knowledge that is not available to me that leaves God ultimately wrapped in mystery. And my appropriate stance before him is not only bowing and in reverent fear, but that appropriate quietness. <laughs> And then flowing from that, I say, I think what he's doing in these so-called carpe diem passages is something like carpe diem, but theologically rich and rooted. So in chapter 4, he says, and he's barely able to get this out at that point, he's really frustrated with work and in all the ways it's disappointing and it's a struggle for him, but he says, but there is nothing better for a person than to eat and to drink and cause his soul to see good in his labor. This also I have seen is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can find joy without him? Now, in all of these cases, there are translation problems and questions. I just read that. This is my translation that you're getting there on that handout. Um, nothing better than to eat and drink and cause your soul to see good in the work you do. You will find that in marginal notes of the New American Standard Version and the English Standard Version. I don't know where else you might find it. And I go, doggone it, why, don't, why is it in the margins and not in the main text? 
what's in the main text is usually something like enjoy your work or find enjoyment in your work. And I go, well, okay. The Tanakh, the, 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 the Jewish Publication Society version says, afford yourself enjoyment through your means. And sort of puts the emphasis on, on, the, on the financial fruit of your work that allows you then to enjoy life. The same kind of thing shows up in chapter 3. Get enjoyment out of this wealth. Um, again in chapter 3, enjoy your possessions. Chapter 5, get pleasure with all the gains he makes. Enjoy himself in chapter 8. Um, that much, the only, the only good a man can have under the sun is to eat and drink and enjoy himself in exchange for his wealth. Um, and, and, and in other translations, it's just kind of, well, eat and drink and try to, try to find enjoyment. But, but I, that's not adequate. What the Hebrew just simply says is, eat and drink and teach your soul to see the good in the work you do. Isn't that interesting? In the context of fearing God and seeing him as your creator and remembering him that way, that you come to understand food and drink are fundamental good things that he wants for you. He wants you to enjoy and, and find pleasure in food and drink. And you are, work is fundamental to being human. You try not working at all for a few months or even a few weeks for some reason that you just, you're just immobilized and, and you will start to go crazy. You, you, we are made for this kind of creativity, for this kind of work, but we, we, are, we are in this broken world, so work is often just hard and sweaty and toilsome and wearying. And so we're going to need to teach our souls to see the good. I'm really blessed to have the job I've had for the last 21 years, but I won't pretend for a minute that that means every Monday morning I walk into this place just so glad to be doing whatever I'm going to be doing for the next two hours on email. And, and so it's, it's, I mean, this is very serious. Teach yourself to see the good because it may not be obvious to you. You may need to do a little work to teach yourself to see the good in the work you do. And I just wish so much that that very literal reading of the Hebrew were in the central text instead of in the margins. As you go on in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 9 to 13, the last, the, the last three lines of that one, I know that there is nothing better, Kohelet says, for a person than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. And moreover, I know that everyone who eats and drinks and sees good in all his labor. This is the gift of God. And again, the right wording there is see good in all his labor, not enjoys his work or finds enjoyment in its fruit. Chapter 3, verse 22, I've seen that nothing is better than that a person should rejoice in his work for this is his due portion. Chapter 5, here is what I've seen to be good and beautiful, to eat, to drink, to see good in all your labor. See, it's consistently that way. See good in all your labor in which you toil under the sun during the few years of your life that God has given you, for this is your due portion. Furthermore, as for everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth and has also empowered that person to eat from them, and to receive his due portion and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. Such a person will not often worry over the days of his life 
because God keeps them occupied with the gladness of his heart. Now I submit to you, these are kind of the, I, I call them the lucky ones. They are, they are the people who find themselves doing work and it just suits them wonderfully. I, I think of uh, Garrison Keillor's old stuff on Lake Wobegon and, and, and one of his whole things on the, on the baker uh, who baked the bread and every morning was up at three o'clock and down to the bakery and baking bread and, 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 and it never occurred to the baker to see any kind of fracturing in his life. It was all just this wonderfully holistic thing where there was a delight in the work and it was hard and demanding but it was it was just a delight and, and, and that's what this chapter 5 passage is about. That's, those, are the, those are the lucky ones who don't have to teach, teach their souls so much to see the good because they just see it. <laughs> say, oh, of course, I love what I do and I see the goodness in it. Chapter 8, verse 15, so I commended joy. Not enjoyment, but joy or gladness or rejoicing. For there is nothing good for a person under the sun except to eat, to drink, and to be glad. This will stand by him in his labors throughout the days of the life that God has given him under the sun. And then chapter 9, with which I began, Go then, eat your bread with gladness. Not just eat and drink, but eat your bread with gladness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved the work you do. Work is a fundamentally good thing. God knows that. You should know that too. Let your clothes always be freshly washed. Your head never lack an ointment. Enjoy life with a woman you love all the days of this sadly broken Hevel life that God has given you in this world. Do it every fleeting day. For this is your due portion in life and in the work at which you work in this world. So whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your strength. Because you will no longer have the chance to work or think or gain knowledge or wisdom about how to live under the sun once you are in the grave. This is, and we can't spend a lot of time on it, but this is, this is part of the under the sun thing. It's, it's how do we live in this world? And, and we can talk about heaven, but how do we live in this world? And, and, and one of the phrases here that I think is just so important is the, this is your due portion. This is another translation question that, that I, I get frustrated by because if you, the, the translators, for the most part, have, have bought into this idea of a sort of a jaded, this is your lot in life kind of a view. And so, um, for instance, in the New Revised Standard Version and also the Revised Standard Version, um, chapter 3, um, you should enjoy your work for this is your lot. Chapter 5, um, find enjoyment in the work for this is your lot. Um, and, and that's the tone that then settles in when I think what's really in view there is a, is a term that suggests this is your due portion. What does that mean? Well, remember the framework here is of the creator. There is an intentionality about our being and the ways we are. And so the idea that this is your due portion is the scripture is Kohelet saying to you, food and drink are not just ways you happen to be. Work is not just something you have to happen to do or have to do. These are what God wants for you. God 
provides food and drink because he cares for those he has made and he wants us to have and enjoy food and drink. He has made us to be workers as he is a worker. He has made us to find each other in marriage and in friendship and in community. And I do think in all of this, in pointing to food and drink, it's also pointing beyond writ large. It's all of nature. It's all of the created order. It is, it is all that is so richly around us every day. And that leads us into work and every sort of work you can imagine. Observing and reflecting and inquiring and discovering and organizing and counting and arranging and creating and imagining all kinds of work of caring and keeping and doing and making. And it also leads us into the goodness of this thing called marriage, of a man and a woman coming together in this relationship, and of family, of friendship, of community, of society. There's all of this, and, and all of it is your due portion. It is what, meaning it is what God wants for you. It is what God has made you for. It is not, oh, well, it's your lot in life. No. It's this wonderful, wonderful kind of gift from God. And when we live a life in fear of God and worship of God and then receive these good gifts as the good gifts they are, knowing that they were given to us as good gifts and they are good gifts still, we are, we are addressing in a significant way the Hevel nature of the world in which we find ourselves. It's still going to be Hevel tomorrow, but it matters how you step into the day. And, and I, you know, when I go back to that, that section in chapter 9, um, I, I see a kind of a, uh, Henry V, St. Chrysostom's Day speech. I don't know. Have you seen it where he steps out the troops and, and he launches in and, and it's just, ah, oh, feeling the chills. I mean, just, it's, it's one of those moments. Yeah, it's a Hevel world, but go. Eat your bread with gladness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved the work you do get up in the morning and take a shower and put on clean clothes and step into this day. Enjoy life. Enjoy life with the woman you love all the days of this sadly broken life. Enjoy life with the friendships you enjoy. Enjoy life with those who are dear to you. All the Hevel days of this world. Do it every fleeting day. For this is what God wants for you. This is what God wants for you. This is your due portion in life and in the work at which you work in this world. Teach yourself to see the good in that work and insist on seeing it. Whatever your hand finds to do then, do it with all your strength. Do it with all your strength because now, today, is the day when you have the opportunity to do it. And, and it is an exciting kind of a, of a little mini sermon here in which he says we're not going to let we're not going to pretend the hevel isn't there and it'll be there tomorrow but we're also not going to let it have the final word we're not going to let it define 
for us. And we are going to step into life in this way. And it's going to be hard because food and drink and work and marriage and all that come with them are areas where unfortunately we show just how messed up we often are and how confused and how stumbling we are and, and I won't start going down that list. But you can do it in your own head on, on just food. How have we messed you up? Let me count the ways. Etc. Okay, yeah, that's real. But it matters whether you just scarf down one more bit of fast food on Tuesday afternoon or, or food becomes this gift of God and in every meal there's a sacramental character in which the self-giving God comes to you again. That's what he wants for you. It, it's, it's a stirring, stirring kind of a picture, I believe. Um, I'll just give you one last thought and then we can talk and, and um, there are so many things that I'd love to get into but you may, let, let, we'll go where you want to go with it. Um, just one last thought and it's there in that last line of your handout. It is interesting that this term Hebrew Hevel is exactly the same term as Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Um, the commentators who say that as Koheleth spoke or wrote, he had a copy of Genesis in his hand, or he had the first three chapters or the first 11 chapters or whatever. I, I think they're on to something. I, I do think this is a fascinating, certainly linguistic connection, but I think it's more than just a linguistic connection. I, I, think, I think one reason why Kohelet may be using this word in this way is because it is Abel's name. And, and Abel's story captures the nature of the world in which Kohelet finds himself. It is an able kind of world, a world of injustice and unfairness and sadness and tragedy. It is, a, it is an able kind of world, a Havel world. And I think then Ecclesiastes can be understood as a meditation on life in a Genesis 4 world that takes us back through Genesis 3 and says the best of God's wisdom for us in a Genesis 4 world is still the wisdom that is revealed in Genesis 1 and 2. And so he takes us back to that original wisdom of fearing God, of knowing God, of walking with God, and of being um, those who receive the good gifts of God, of food and drink, of work, of caring and keeping, of marriage, of friendship, of relationship with God, and his created order. So I think that is a way of, of just seeing the whole thing. I, I think Ecclesiastes is a meditation on life in a Genesis 4 world that points us back to the, to the enduring, fundamentally good gifts of God that are there in Genesis 1. Um, let me stop there. Uh, there's any number of directions we could go or talk about. Um, and we'll go ahead and spend at least a few minutes. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts. Yes. Do you think that the um, the direction of meaninglessness, that posture toward this life, toward the world, of, of a kind of uh, resignation, is attended by, or even justified by, a certain eschatology? So, recent conversations with people close to me 
have suggested to me that the idea that we, in a very real sense, become the body of Christ and, and are part of him bringing the kingdom here is not the way they think about Christian responsibility or Christian life now. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of, um, I don't know if it's fear that we're, by thinking in that way, we're usurping God's ultimate will, or by thinking that way, um, we, um, we're acting in a way that God's going to bring the end in his time, and he's going to usher in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And we're, our role in that is, well, we're just waiting. Um, there have been recent conversations with some dear people to me who have, that have led me to believe that that's the case. Let me, let me add one more thing to this. One of the most um, beautiful contemporary pieces of art I've encountered is, is, a, is a musical on Broadway called Town, And the premise of the musical is that it's, it's the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice and Hades and Persephone kind of mixed together. And the, myth, the, the premise of the story is Orpheus is the hero who can sing the song that will save the world. It will bring spring back. This world. And I've wondered oh man, that's moving. And also, okay, well, the writer of the show, who was raised Quaker, which is really interesting, um, is making this claim through this art, how Christian is that? And I think, I'm wondering, is that a Christian posture? The idea that we join Christ in singing the song that will restore this world mm-hmm. um, is a really precious notion to me. But I'm wondering, especially in, in light of these recent conversations, how, how Christian is that? Am I, is, that is that an okay way to be uh, thinking about it? You suggested that it is. That there really is a, we are in this world and it matters how we live. Mm-hmm. And, and it matters because Christ has ordained that we be his presence here and, and bringing bringing these kingdoms that way, or um, is there a different way that we'd be mm-hmm. Christian? Great to have you back, Juan. <laughs> 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 We've your good questions. Um, yeah, and I, and I hope I get, I hope I get the, the real gist of the question in this response. Um, I, I would not frame what Kohelet is saying here as eschatological in any way, it's it's not a it's not an eschatological frame, and and in fact I think part of what people struggle with is um, it refuses to think about heaven. There there just it refuses to think about afterlife. There are confusing statements. Is there afterlife? Isn't there afterlife? It's just and and you get this phrase under the sun, and he is he is forcing an issue. And and it's not. I I think at the end of the day. There is an afterlife indicated. That, that's where he comes out at the end of the day. But, but that doesn't do you any good in this book. He, he says, in effect, what he's saying is, don't talk to me about heaven. That's not my question. My question is, how do you live today? Don't talk to me about an apocalyptic vision. Don't talk to me about an eschatology. I want to know, how do I live today in a way that is meaningful and good? Will it have potentially redemptive implications? I think so. But even that is not what he's arguing. He is, he is trying to 
recover the will of the creator for the creation and fight, now this may then relate to sort of even to some of your the, the friends you're talking about, to, to recover the will of the creator for the creation and say whether fallen or not fallen yet, fallen or redeemed, whatever it is, these truths apply. These truths that, that your due portion is to receive God's good gifts and, and embrace them and live them. And, and it's not saying to you that that means we're going to recreate the world or we're going to redeem the world or anything. And quite to the contrary, you may work your whole life on something and it will be destroyed the day you die or the week before you die. I, it, it, so it's, it's not to come that we've got to do this whole restorative vision thing or sing the song of Orpheus. Now, meanwhile, do I love the imagery of Orpheus singing? Um, yeah, I just don't think that's what's going on here, to be fair to the text. Yeah. And, and I do find it helpful to sort of just take it that way, because I get into conversations where, you know, we'll have this whole argument that, um, that it matters how you live because we are involved in the restoration of all things and we are, we are doing this work. And then someone will bring up the problem, well, yeah, but, you know, if where you were trying to work that out was in Ukraine and now your buildings are just being blown to bits and your loved ones are dying and what happens to that whole vision? I, and, and this is why I, I, I want to get it back to you can't be banking on I'm going to have some great success and leave the legacy no matter how you describe that. It's, it's how do I live today? And, and what would be a meaningful, good way to live today? And I'll bet you, I, I, I know for a fact there are people in Ukraine right now doing way better at that than you and I are. They, they are insisting in the midst of the Hevel all around them that they take that bit of food they've got and it is a moment of worship. And, and they treasure every bit of God's good gifts in the midst of this broken, troubled world. So I, I, whatever our situation is, I, I think that's what this book is calling us back to. Yeah, Scott. How do you see the themes of this book realized in the life of Christ? I'm sorry, say it again. How do you see the themes of Ecclesiastes realized or fulfilled in Christ's life? Um, well, in this world you will have trouble. <laughs> um, and then, yes, he, he has come to defeat uh, death and sin. Um, but he certainly enters into the brokenness. Um, I, I, and that, yeah, that would be well worth reflecting on further. Um, but, but certainly to trace the ways that he enters into the brokenness, um, that, that he is a confrontation with the spiritual powers of darkness in which the spiritual powers of darkness are taking notice and, and not happy about the situation and, and there is a head-on kind of a thing happening. Um, so, so in terms of the brokenness and the fallenness and the reality of all that, Jesus is hitting it head-on um, and he is, he is entering into it and ultimately completely entering into it, completely giving himself up um, in order to bring the redemption. 
Now, to flip the question a little bit, um, there is the question of how does Jesus relate to Ecclesiastes, the question of how Ecclesiastes finds expression in him, I'd, I'd love to hear more thoughts on myself, but um, this is always a question for people who are Christians, certainly, and reading what is for us than the Old Testament. Um, and Ecclesiastes does create an interesting challenge in that regard. Um, there is a reference at the end to a shepherd who uh, gives these, all these wise sayings. Um, but, and there are a couple other things that people will say, but I'll tell you what I, what I think is, you take the e Ecclesiastes as a meditation on Genesis, a, a Genesis 4 world, and you take us back to Genesis 1 and 2, somebody's got to take you there. I, it's, 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 um, it's fascinating then that Jesus' work is undoing the work of the curse. He, his work is one of undoing the fall, and this relates back to then, I think, bringing the redemptive uh, element into this, that, that Christ is, the, the, the work of Christ in Ecclesiastes is, is he is the way we, we have our best and only hope of really um, recovering and entering into the fullness of what's being offered to us in Genesis 1 and 2. But, but your first question deserves a lot more thought than I've given it. Quanda? Yeah, yeah uh, so I have a specific question about a specific portion of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and it's troubled me for as long as I've <laughs> been reading Ecclesiastes, and it's in the seventh chapter. I had to look it up. Mm -hmm. It's in the seventh chapter, and he talks about how, you know, I've observed that bad things happen to good people sometimes, and sometimes bad people live on and on and enjoy their lives. And then, you know, kind of the way that you phrased this and contextualized it is very helpful for me to think about, okay, so he's musing about this, but then in, in all of it, he's seeing that, okay, in spite of everything, in spite of these observations, it's still good to fear God. But in that particular verse, he actually says, so because of this, then don't be too good. Mm -hmm. Right? Don't be too good or you'll die before your time or something like that. Don't be too evil. Why destroy yourself? And so that just kind of confuses me because I'm like, okay, aren't we called to die? You know, like lay down our lives if need be? Isn't that kind of what we're called to do? So it's a little confusing for me. Yeah. Um, yes, that's one of those great passages. Um, And um, uh, yeah, chapter seven, verses fifteen, following. Um, as you said, the righteous and the wicked. Um, do not be excessively righteous. Do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Um, <laughs> um, do not be excessively wicked. Why should you die before your time? Um, Um, I think uh, there, there's on, on the overly righteous question that, that's I think the particularly difficult part of that the overly wise phrase there is, is there with it as well don't be overly righteous don't be overly wise at the end of chapter 8 there's a reference to a person who thinks he knows more than he does and and it and says and and uh, Kohelet says um, uh, 
though the wise man should say, I know, he, he cannot, he, he doesn't know what he thinks he knows. And I, and, I, and I take those phrases to be that sort of a thing. Um, there is a certain sort of righteousness. Um, well, Jesus comes to mind in dealing with that kind of righteousness um, in the Pharisees who, who were very, very given to being righteous. They were, they were all about being righteous. Um, and, and I think it's that kind of image that comes to mind here for me. Um, so I'd probably go that direction with it. But, but the, maybe the more important thing to say is um, part of what's wonderful about this book and hard about this book is you've always got to keep making judgments about what, what to do with that phrase or that statement. It, it's not, it, this, is a, this is a book in which he is genuinely struggling. It's a little bit like Job and his advisors. You know, you've got to you've got to be discerning. Where are we getting something that you hold on to, and where are we going? Mm, I think he's working through some at that point. So I do want to leave room for that, and I want to leave room for the kind of aphoristic, disjointed stream of consciousness character of the book, and and say we've all got to be careful reading this book. And and I will say what I said at the beginning. My reading of it, as I've offered it to you tonight is not meant to be this neat, clean framework, and now everything in Ecclesiastes is going to make sense to you. Um, seriously. But, but yeah, that's a, I've always puzzled over that, too. And I, I think he is saying, I know some really righteous people, and they drive me crazy. <laughs> um, it, it's got a little bit of that kind of a feel to it. Yeah. Uh, Dave? saying things that I've kind of thought of myself as well. Um, one thing that stood out to me was when you were trying to summarize at the end, um, saying, take the way that um, the world is this able or this heavy world um, and go to the hope of, or the, um, the goodness of Genesis 1 and 2 and God's wisdom. And something I was, I remember explaining this to somebody um, a couple years ago. Um, about how I, I, I told her I, I'm not an optimist, um, but I'm also not a pessimist. I'm mm -hmm. a realist, which by virtue of saying that, I'm probably not a realist. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but I, I, I saw it as um, that try, at least trying to grasp the way things are would point me to autism and hope. And what I said was um, that life is full of, of suffering, but, and it's really awful, but there's so much hope and mm -hmm. there's so much good. Um, and, and I start off saying that just to say that I'm, I'm gra I feel like I connect with a lot of things that you're saying here. Um, there's something that I still haven't quite connected with yet, uh, which is it, it seems to be a pull up the bootstraps idea and walk into this world and take what you've got and mm -hmm. enjoy it. Um, and in a sense, it's I kind of see it as more of a um, embracing just the way that we are. And yes, take the good because it's so good and it's given to us. Um, but in that sense of humility, just accept what you are, also accept what you are and be what you are. Um, because even though it feels bad, there is still sort of a good in it. Um, and I was just wondering, I can clarify a little more if you want, but I was just wondering what you 
thought of that idea as like God is perfect in all that <coughs> is, and we are lowly creatures, but what good it is that we get to serve this God. And I'm I'm not sure I'm exactly following you on the on the good. Um, what's what's the contrast to pull up your boot on your by your own bootstraps? What are you contrasting with that? So with the so I'm seeing the pull up your bootstraps as kind of a, in a sense of a defiant outlook on suffering. Mm -hmm. as it's here and it's terrible, but enjoy the good stuff because it's given to you still. Mm -hmm. um, but then I I kind of see it as not necessarily a defiance, but an accepting the the suffering with the good. And okay. That, yeah. Mm -hmm. And embracing it. Well, I think I think Kohelet, by the time he's done, at least by the end of chapter eight, clearly, he is accepting the world as he encounters it. It, it is as troubling and disturbing as he's afraid that it is. But I don't think then that becomes the final word. And so the fear of God and the reception and delight in God's good gifts as a good gift still does become a, a meaningful way to be in this troubled world. Um, so in a sense, yes, you've accepted things as they are, um, but you, you are, you've become convinced of a meaningful response. And, and I would want to be very careful here. Um, you know, Jesus hasn't come yet, okay, when Kohelet's working. Um, don't miss the fact that the context for receiving the good gifts of God is God. It is the fear of God. It is that that humble place of worship and of knowing the Lord your God who is one, O Israel. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. It is, it is being a part of that law and wisdom tradition that is very meaningful and rich and it is what we then after Christ know in and through him but don't take away the meaningful reality of that relationship for the Jewish person who is being addressed in this book centuries before Jesus. And so, I, I, I mean, I hope that that's communicating appropriately. Um, it's a relationship with God in which you say, yeah, I'll, I'll accept that the world is what it is and I don't understand it and I don't understand God. I w so yes, you're right about the acceptance and the realism, if you will, at that point. Um, but, but I do think this fear of God and stepping into the day this way is not just pulling up your own bootstraps. It is, it is living in relationship with the Lord your God and, and seeing him as creator God and, and knowing that what he originally wanted for us is our due portion still. Um, we should uh, quit here. Um, 
Let me let me just say one one further little bit by way of conclusion, and anybody who wants to run can talk some more. But um, I have finally actually started to do some research on this. Um, I do things backwards a lot, uh, so you know, for <laughs> countless hours I read and read and read this thing, um, and worked with it, and and then obviously was getting input from other sources and people. But there's been a lot of really interesting work done on this in the last 50 years, and I won't try to launch into half an hour on it. Um, um, a couple of people, though, one of whom is actually a senior fellow at the Chesterton House up in New York, our, our, one of our sister centers, Ryan O'Dowd, um, another one, uh, Craig Bartholomew and Michael Fox, and, 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 and they, they come out very much where I do in terms of sort of how to live meaningfully in this world. And, and that it is the fear of God and that <coughs> these passages, the so-called carpe diem passages, are to be taken seriously, taken to heart, and as, as really giving us wisdom from God. The place where they and I, I think, still disagree is that they see all of that as still in contrast and contradiction to the Havel declarations. So they're still seeing Havel as, as sort of this sense of futility and meaninglessness and, it's, and it stands in contradiction to the positive appropriation of these passages. Um, and, and that's where I still want to disagree with them and, and push back and say, no, no. I, and, and I think it matters then as to how you do understand the Hevel uh, situation and, what, and just what Kohelet's going for. Um, but if you wanted to explore those things further, we could do that too. Um, but uh, I... I We'll just go ahead and, without any kind of a neat conclusion, just sort of say, as always, it's great fun to spend time this way with these people like yourselves. Um, it has been my privilege to do that for many years now, and um, and if Mike lets me, I might come back, you know, a couple of years from now, do something. But um, uh, thank you, um, and uh, I'll see you whenever. Yeah. <laughs>